Father, we are so, so thankful to you for the good news that you have given to us. God, we thank you that we get to, uh, to know your son and that because of him we have life, life everlasting. God, I pray that even right now, tonight, as we uh, begin this semester, that community worship, God, as we look uh, to what you have to say to us through your word, God, would you give us receptive hearts? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us faith to trust you, take you at your word, to follow you, to lay our lives down for you, the one who has laid down your life for us? God, we pray that you would bring growth to the gospel in our hearts, even tonight. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, guys, I am so, so happy to be here with you all tonight. We are, uh, I'm very excited to be beginning this series with you through Romans. We're just going to be working through the book of Romans. So I hope you guys brought your thinking caps. And uh, we're going to be spending actually this semester and next semester in Romans. We didn't want to, we didn't want to gloss over it. It's a long book and there's a lot in there and went back and forth on it and whether there's parts that we could skip. And we just decided it would be best to just give it two semesters to really be able to dive into it and hit mostly everything. So tonight, we're going to be starting in Romans 1. If you've not already flipped there or scrolled there, feel free to turn to Romans chapter 1. So um, I remember driving from Los Angeles to Riverside when I had first gotten off the plane in California for college. I grew up in North Carolina, and for some odd reason, I decided to go cross-country for college. Some of you may have done something similar like that. And uh, so I flew there. I had a backpack and a little roll-along bag, and that's all I had. It was a camping backpack. I was so, I'm such a hippie. I'm so granola, I guess. I don't know. Had my camping backpack with me, and uh, hop on the plane, fly out there, land, don't know anybody, so I had to have some random person from the college, it's called Cal Baptist CBU, so I had to get some random guy from CBU to come pick me up, and uh, it was a pretty awkward hour-long drive down this packed freeway, Um, but what I remember more than the awkward silences of of the car ride was about halfway through the drive, so we're going just taking a straight line from Los Angeles to Riverside, and I remember coming over this slight hill and seeing this, uh, this mountain range off in the distance. And it was, it was huge. It just kind of popped out of nowhere. We, we went over this hill and just this huge uh, mountain range. And I remember thinking, like, that is so random that it's right. It's just, it was like, you could see the beginning to the end of it, and it just like popped up out of the ground, and it was huge. And it felt like it was like you could just reach out and grab it, but you knew it was really far away. And so we're driving, and it's getting bigger and bigger. You can see more and more of it. And so we're, we're about 15 minutes outside of Riverside now, and I noticed that there's snow on top of this mountain range. Uh, it's called the San Gabriel Mountains, and there's snow. This is August, mind you. There's snow on the top of these mountains. And so I'm sitting there thinking, like, I'm looking at, in one view, I've got palm trees and snow-capped mountains in one view. And I just remember like having my mind blown, thinking, this is, this is so beautiful. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I didn't, think that w- that, I didn't know that was allowed to happen. You can have snow and palm trees in one eye-line site. 
And uh, we, so we finally get to the school. He drops me off. I take one trip into my dorm with all of my worldly possessions on my back. And uh, fast forward two months later, I've had one too many make-your-own-waffles in the calf. Uh, I've, I've already overslept like five times from my 8 o'clock class. Uh, I've made a home in the library already. And uh, the mountains are still there. The crazy thing about these mountains is they just kind of they just stand there over top of the campus of our school. Uh, California, if, you, if you've ever been there, it's almost completely flat, at least in Southern California. There's no trees. It's very different from here. Here you can't see anything at all because there's so many trees there you're going to see for miles. And this mountain range, is just, it's there. And I noticed it, but I didn't care about it anymore. Like it was, it was so, I mean, it was just, it was so beautiful at first when I first saw it. Within two months, I'm like, I walk around campus, I go to class, I go eat my food, and all of a sudden, it's there, and I'm not thinking anything about it. It's lost its beauty. I'm desensitized to this beautiful mountain range right there. I don't really care about it anymore. I'm not, I'm not intrigued by it anymore. And that is exactly what happens so often and so easily to us as followers of Jesus. So often, we, we get that initial conversion early on where we're just, we are captured by the beauty of Christ. We're captured and intrigued by the cross that he would lay down his life for us. And we're drawn into that. And this, this, it's, it captivates our imagination. And we want to know more about it. We dive into it. Two months later, fast forward, you still have the same old sin habit. You still have the same family problems. You're still depressed. You know, life is still life. And all of a sudden, Jesus isn't so shiny anymore. He's not so intriguing and attractive anymore. He's just Jesus. <laughs> like you're, you're glad that you know him and you're glad that he's in your heart, uh, but he's just, he's just Jesus now. This, I believe, is, is, if not the main reason, one of the main reasons that we have the book of Romans at our disposal. Our view of Jesus is way too small. Like no one's view of Jesus is too big. Everybody's view of Jesus, mine included, could and should and needs to increase to grow. And so Paul has written this entire book explaining the good news of Jesus, diving in. And it's where he starts off in this book is, it's fascinating to me because he knows that we are so easily desensitized to beauty. And so he writes this book to expand our vision of Jesus. If we're captured by Jesus, he has our hearts, he has our hands, he has our mind, he has it all. And so tonight, what I want to do is we're kicking off this semester in Romans. I want to invite us to celebrate the gospel freshly. So even now, as, I, as I'm talking, prayerfully ask God to give you a fresh vision of the same old news that you've known for so long. And maybe you, maybe you haven't known. Maybe you're here in this room and you've, ne- you've never heard this. This is, this is fresh to you, and I pray that it comes uh, freshly to you and that the Spirit of God uses it powerfully in you. So I want to invite us to, uh, to celebrate the gospel. And so from this passage in Romans 1, I see uh, three reasons that we should celebrate the gospel. These are simple things, simple things that we can't miss and that we should never overlook and we should never, ever, ever underestimate. And they're the very things that we so often do underestimate. So we're going to start in verse 1. 
says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul, he starts out, the very first thing he says, says his name, and then what does he say? He says he's a servant. Now that word can also be translated slave. So when was the last time you introduced yourself? <laughs> Hi, I'm Kevin, slave. Kevin, servant of Jesus. Like that's, that's not really in my frame of reference, but Paul, that's, this Jesus guy, he is, he is proud to be uh, a slave of this guy. He's bragging about it right up front, uh, saying, Paul, next thing you need to know, I'm a slave to Jesus. I'm linked up to Jesus. I wear his yoke around my neck, and I'm pumped about that. That's the first thing he says about himself. He says he's called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then what Paul will do here in the next uh, uh, five or six verses is begin to uh, very generally give us a brief unpacking of the gospel. He says he's set apart for it. He's given his life to it. He's chained himself up to Christ. He is willingly, it's it's as if he's sold himself into this. The word that this comes from is uh, there's a willful giving into this slavery. So he's put himself into this. And he's set apart for the gospel. So what we begin to see about the gospel is first that the entire Bible is about the gospel. I think so often we see this as just some old archaic book of rules that I don't understand. And my Bible teacher tells me I should read and then I don't in the morning and I feel guilty. And it's, you know, and, uh, we, I remember when I first got my, my first Bible, I was uh, the only Christian in my family and all my friends had Bibles that uh, were all like scuffed up and like crinkled and stuff. And mine was brand new and I felt really unholy that mine looked unused. And so I took it and just like bent it up to make it look used. Um, I think there's another reason why our Bibles should look used. And the reason why we should be drawn to them is, is this. It says uh, in verse 2 of the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he's saying all the Scriptures that came before this, it all promises. It's all pointing towards something. It's pointing towards someone that right there, that catches my attention. I'm not looking at 66 disconnected things that have all these nice rules for me to keep that I can't ever do. I can't seem to keep up with them. I can keep a couple maybe here and there. He's saying, no, this, this gospel, this, is, this has been the plan of God since the very beginning. The very beginning of the first writing of the first book, it's been about Jesus Then he goes on to say in verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he goes goes on to say something really interesting about Jesus. So he's explaining this gospel. It's been, it's been set apart for it. The entire scripture has been leading up to it. And then he says, that Jesus has been declared the Son of God in power. So what does that mean? That he used to be either not the Son of God and he's just now been declared the Son of God or that he's always been the Son of God but now he's 
in power because he used to be weak. Look what it's tied to. He's been declared the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection. The resurrection of Christ changed reality. It changed Jesus' relationship with the entire cosmos. He's, he wasn't before. He was, before the resurrection, he was the son of God, but not in power. But because of the resurrection, because he has defeated death and he now lives eternally for you and me, he has inaugurated a new world, a new era, a new kingdom. Jesus has a new relationship to the world because of the resurrection. And because of that, there's power. And that earthquake that happened uh, of the resurrection, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have felt the shockwaves of that. Like you have come to feel the tremors of the resurrection in your life. And thank God for that, that you've not just been left standing on the shores desolate. You have felt the holy uh, work of God in the world, in your life, because of the resurrection. It's already, Jesus is seeming a little bit more exciting than he was maybe 10 minutes ago. He goes on to say this. He says uh, in verse 5, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He says this about obedience. He says that, uh, that Paul and that we have, we've received grace, we've, we've received apostleship, this idea of being sent, we've received this gift of God, and now we're sent with it. He says, for this is the purpose, for the obedience of faith. This here, what, what Christ does through the gospel, what it tells us is it marries two things that we so often separate. We so often separate faith and obedience. It's like faith is that initial first step when you walk the aisle, write the name on the card, I'm following Jesus now. And now I'm following Jesus, so I do the obedience thing from here on out. But here he is bringing the two together. Think about it like this. Think about a kite, okay? You've got a kite. How do you fly a kite? With a string. If you don't have a string, can you fly the kite? No, you can't. So trying to be obedient to God without faith in Christ, without him energizing you because of the good news, but without that stirring your affections, it's like trying to fly a kite without the string. It's not going to go anywhere. You're not going to be able to do it. But also the opposite. If you only have faith and there's no obedience, it's just like a lazy string laying on the ground. But you put the two together and that thing can soar. That can fly around up in the sky, do some pretty cool things. Um, and this is, what, well, this is what the gospel does for us. It marries faith and obedience. It frees us up to actually obey, right? Like it, he doesn't put the burden on us. He takes the, the burden from us, which then frees us to stand up and to follow him. So here we see Paul starts, he says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. And he lists all these things about the gospel. And he's saying, he's just, he's proclaiming Jesus is my master. Like he's my Lord. 
And the, the question for, for you and for me is, who is our master? Like we're, we're, all, we're all mastered by something, by someone. Even if you think you're not, you are. So the question is, will you either be mastered by Christ, the good master, the compassionate master, the kind master whose yoke is easy and light, or will you sell yourself into slavery to false gods that don't exist, that don't have any power to save you, that whisper in your ear that they can bring you out, they can deliver you, and they never do? Or will you trust in Christ who says that he has already accomplished that for you. He's done it on your behalf. So the first reason that we should celebrate the gospel is it's, it's about Jesus. The gospel is not about propositions. It's about a person. So in the gospel, we are invited through the propositions, through doctrine, to a person. I think about John 5, when Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees, and he says, you think that you, you have life because you search the scriptures. You think that in the scriptures is life. And he says, that's not it. The scriptures, they testify to me. And you don't have life because you won't come to me. So we can't ever get confused. Yeah, I mean, yes, the, all the scriptures are about Jesus. We submit ourselves to them. But they lead us to a person. The gospel, he, he's trying to get us at just a brief Brief snapshot here of the gospel. He's saying it's about a person, not just propositions, not just black and white statements about the living Christ who was resurrected and sent shockwaves throughout all of eternity. The second reason that we should celebrate the gospel rather than diminish it and just think, oh yeah, it's a thing I, oh, I've known it forever, is found in verses 8 through 15. Verses 8 through 15, Paul is expressing his, this deep, heartfelt desire to meet these Christians in Rome. He's never met them. He's saying, hey, I, I pray for you guys. I pray for you regularly, consistently, because I've heard of your faith. I've heard of the fact that you have trusted in Christ, and that's gone out into places all over the world. And I've heard about that. And I thank God for your sincere faith. Because I know that comes from him. It is a gift. And so I thank him for it. And I pray for you that, uh, that your faith would increase and it would continue. And he says, you know, I long to see you. I've, I've been trying to get to you. Things have kept getting in the way, but I'm trying to get there. So just trust that. Hope, just put your hope in that, that, that I'm trying to get there. And I hope to get there eventually. Let's skip down to verse 15 and, and, and see, what, see what he says. After he says that, he says, you know, I want to come to you so we can be mutually encouraged by one another. I want to impart to you a gift of the gospel for your good, and I want to be encouraged by you. And look what he says in verse 15. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He just said, if you pull back, he just said in verse 8, we'll read it, First, I thank God, thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Jump down to verse 15. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. These are people that he's just said, your faith isn't just like a little, little tiny flame that needs to be fanned. No, this, this is a hot burning fire and the world sees it. And I want to preach the gospel to you. I want to bring the gospel to you again. You need to hear it again. 
what Paul is, is communicating to this church is the gospel doesn't get old. It never gets old. Why? Because it's about a person, a living person who just so happens to be God for you. And he anticipates what they'll say here in, a, in, a, in the next passage. But, you know, I think that so many of us, we, we do, we gloss over, over the gospel. I mean, think about like at the end of a sermon when you hear somebody present the gospel and you know it's coming, you can feel it. As soon as they start going, you check out, you're gone. You're like, yeah, I've been there, done that. Yeah, you have. But guess what? You need to hear it again. <laughs> you do. Like, you need to hear it again because you know what happens when you hear the gospel? Power happens. God's spirit makes use of his word. First Corinthians 3 talks about that the fact that we plant and we water, but God gives the increase. And so let those gospel seeds be watered in you. Like, don't, don't hold back from that. And I'm guilty of it just as much as anybody in this room. As soon as I hear, you know, whoever's preaching go off on, on the last, you know, 10-minute, five-minute gospel thing, I'm like, all right, I'm done. I'm checking out, closing my Bible. I know that already. That's not what Paul would do. That's not what he wants for this church. He says, I want to come to you even though you know the gospel so I can, so I can preach it to you. I want, I want to preach this to you even though you could preach it to me. And then catch this, he says, the next thing he says is, and this is uh, a passage that you might know, and it's couched in this, this whole sequence. He says in verse 16, for, so be, because, this is, this is the reason that I wanna, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God for salvation. For who? Everyone. How? Who believes? He's like, I'm not ashamed of that, right? Because he knows, he knows. Like if I, was, if I was to write a letter to you all and say, hey, you guys, you Christians are great. You're awesome. Um, I can't wait to come preach the gospel to you. I'm like, yeah, uh, I feel kind of insulted almost. I mean, I, we know that's basics, you know? So he's anticipating that and he goes, I, I'm not ashamed of that. Like I'm not, I don't care what you think <laughs> about that. Because uh, I know, I know the power of this, of this message. I know the power that lies within this, the power of God that can open a dead heart and breathe life into it, make it beat again, change your affections. He's not ashamed of that. But I think that we, we often are. We often are ashamed of it. I'm not talking about like before your friends who don't know Jesus. I'm talking about just in your heart. Like, yeah, like is it really... Is it really that powerful? Like Jesus died for my sins and rose three days later and now he lives for me? Like is, is that it? Like is that the whole thing? Yes, it is. And what are your, what are your options? <laughs> you know, believe it or not, you know, what else are you going to believe? So he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm going to bring it to you again and I hope I get to come to you and bring, and bring this truth to you. And so the third thing, the third reason why we should celebrate the gospel that we see in verses 16 and 17 is because it brings life. This is, this is again, this seems simple. But we can't miss this. We cannot miss this. He says he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. 
for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he says this, for in it the righteousness of God, the righteousness, when you hear the, the word righteousness, it's talking about being declared right. God is making things right. And he said that this is declared through the gospel. It's revealed, it's made known. It's something that you and I would not have been able to figure out. He says it's being revealed. It's something that's hidden. And if you think about it, that makes sense. What other religion out there is there that's saying anything similar to this at all? There's not. No other religion, no other faith system is saying anything close to this, that it is God who has worked on your behalf. And so he says God's righteousness is revealed. His saving work, his saving activity is revealed from faith for faith. What that simply means is it's all faith. That's how it all goes down. The whole thing. Beginning to end, it's faith. Don't, don't dilute that with anything else. Don't let the enemy sneak into your mind and say, yeah, but you, know, you did this and that, or you haven't done this or that. From faith for faith. Like Stake your life on that and see what happens. See what kind of life God can uh, bring up in you as you do that. And, and, and the thing about faith is this. Is faith is really, it's just like an empty vessel that you receive. Faith is not a work. It's just the avenue by which you receive the work of God for you. And so that's, that's the, the beautiful, wonderful thing of faith is that because of that, we can live. He says, he, he pulls back to the Old Testament. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. You're not just saved by faith. You live by faith. You breathe, take every step, every moment of every day by faith. Having received from God the benefits of Christ dying on your behalf, forgiving your sins, restoring you, healing you. Live by that. That's what the righteous do. And so... With this in mind, we, it would be, I think we'd be amiss to not uh, spend the night talking about celebrating the gospel, putting it before our face, just like uh, that mountain range that I saw that lost its beauty, to restore our sensitivity to that beauty, to observe the Lord's Supper, to come to the table, to dine where the food never runs out, the drink never runs dry. We get to face it, we get to feel it, touch it, taste it. We get to be reminded um, it's almost impossible to receive the Lord's Supper and to, to miss it. And so this night where we're, we're celebrating the simplicity of the things that we've known for so long, uh, it only makes sense to do that which is so simple and so elementary is to observe the Lord's Supper. And so I want to invite you to, uh, to bow your heads, close your eyes, and spend a couple, uh, just a couple of minutes thanking God for that which you uh, have just learned of tonight, maybe for the first time ever, you've never heard this, or thanking God for that which you have known since you were a little baby, <laughs> as long as you can remember because of the power that is in it to save you. I'll give you just a minute to do that.
Father, we do thank you so much for your son, Jesus, the life that we have in him. Father, we thank you that you, uh, you have given us something physical and visible to touch and to taste and to see, to remind us of the beauty of Christ, to recapture us, to put it right in front of our face, God. We thank you for that. We thank you for the nourishment that we receive through it as we feast on you by faith. So God, now as we observe uh, your supper, help us to celebrate you and what you've done for us through your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.